Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a speaker, a coach, and a published author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will share tips, tools, and strategies used by our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in their lives. I am on a mission to educate, empower, and inspire you to see that when you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today I am talking with Megan Harmony. Megan and I had such a wonderful conversation, and I just really first off want to commend her at how open and real this conversation is. And I know somebody's going to have some takeaways, and it's really going to hit home. So Megan is the founder and visionary behind Soul for Sobriety. She's a soul coach and inspirational speaker. Her community is not, it's not just a community, it's a lifestyle. Megan has overcome so many painful and difficult life circumstances and wholeheartedly advocates that it's possible to rise above it while remaining sober and finding reasons to have hope. She believes that love is a universal language that everyone understands and devotes her life to spreading it everywhere she goes. She will ignite the flame in your soul when you feel it has flickered and reminds others of the power within them. She knows there is a spiritual solution to any situation and we need to connect to our soul to find it. We had such a powerful conversation and I'm so, so grateful for this, this real heart to heart that we had. And we both were able to see and learn something from each other. And that is the best part about this podcasting and who I get to connect with and who I get to meet along the way. Some of the things we talked about is how pain can be our biggest motivator if we choose to learn from it and let it guide us to how we choose to live. We don't have to live in pain. That is still our choice. Living in a victim state or victim mentality doesn't serve us and it certainly doesn't create any change. All the change in our life starts with taking full ownership and radical responsibility for our choices. Megan shares the power of the tools to stay on track daily, such as prayer, meditation, journaling, gratitude, how she stays in her zone and in her lane, even though life still throws challenges her way. She talks about the power of finding your tribe and how it helps you to succeed to be the best version of yourself. If you don't have them now, it is possible to find them. One of the things I love that we talked about is how to let go of the resentment, the anger, the what ifs, the comparison, and the judgment, because none of it serves our higher self and it only keeps us stuck and in really negative energy that doesn't allow us to create change. And lastly, we talked about we have to ask for what we need. We have to be willing to ask for what we need. And when we need help to work through a problem or a challenge or a situation, there are times when we just have to surrender and ask for help. And that is a massive turning point. And it can be for all of our lives when we do this. So join me in this conversation today because it's really powerful. And I'm so proud of Megan. And I thank her for being so real and honest with us because that is how we all learn. I really, really believe there's so much power in our stories and when we share them and you know, when we own our choices, we truly, truly own our life. Enjoy this conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today we have Megan Franco with us. Megan and I connected in our mastermind group, and so we've never met in person. And I know how hard she works, and I know she has a backstory. And 
I, before we even start, I just want to thank her for showing up here to share her story because I know that someone is going to walk away and go, wow, that just really hit me. So I'm super proud of her because I love it when people stand up and share the difficult things in life. And she definitely has done that. The name of her company is called Soulful Sobriety. And I'm super excited and grateful that she's here today. Welcome, Megan. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here and get to know your listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start with some questions first so people can get to know who you are a little bit. Um, where are you from? I am from the small town of Chatham, Ontario. Oh, God. Do you know I have to, like, do you know where I was born? Chatham. Chatham. Really? Yeah. I was born in Chatham. Yeah. I remember hearing that on Sarah's podcast. I'm like, I've got to tell her that. I was born in Chatham and lived there for the first probably 10 years of my life. Yeah. And I mean, we lived in, I mean, I call that city. I live in city now, but for me growing up, that was city. And, um, you know, Saturdays we go to the YMCA, we would do things like that. And then my parents moved us to no offense, anyone, but moved us to a little town outside of a little town. And it was like, yeah. Um, yeah. And we lived on a farm and we had barn cats. And I remember going, what happened to my life? <laughs> like, <laughs> My mom says that was my worst year of my life because I was so mad at them because I was like, where, there's no friends, there's no people here. Like, this is just, so anyways, yeah. So Chatham, that's where I was born and raised. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So tell me, are you a reader? I am. I love to read. Awesome. And I can find the time to. I know it's making that time, right? Do you, um, can you let me know or let the listeners know maybe what is the most impactful book that you have read? Well, we'll probably get into that more in my story, but the book by Alcoholics Anonymous, I also coined the big book has been really special in my life um, okay. over the last nine years. But if I were just to pick any book that I absolutely love, I'd have to say pretty well anything by Gabby Bernstein. Mm -hmm. It's way up there on the list. She is, um, she's a very powerful, uh, impactful speaker. And I know when I first started to do meditation, I was listening to her free meditations and that hit home for me. And <clears throat> pardon me, very early in my journey, I applied for a scholarship for her um, Spirit Junkie Masterclass and was one of the like two that was picked to to win it so i did get to go through that with the group and I mean, it's a big group but it's still um super beyond grateful for it and i learned so much from her so she is one of my early early mentors yeah so funny you say that marcia i too have a scholarship for the spirit junkie master class are you serious yeah how amazing is that when did you have when did you have yours you know last year i i just uh last year just, currently enrolling for this coming year and I just finished up. So. Oh, that's so awesome. And a lifetime access to it, right? You get access to it and then she adds to the program yeah. and stuff. So yeah, she just has such a beautiful, beautiful soul and a very giving. And she, she would be somebody very early in my journey that I was like, Oh, she's actually sharing her story. Like she's actually sharing and telling what happened. And, you know, I just remember thinking, huh, that's interesting. Like that was a, that was a real aha moment. So I love that you said her. Do you have a favorite quote? Oh, I have so many. Um, off the top of my head though, 
I'd have to say, again, it's out of the big book, but we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Can you say that again? Just so We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, mm -hmm. and free. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. So if I ask you um, who a mentor has been for you, is it, and it can be somebody you know, somebody you don't know, is there, who would you look back and say, who's been a great mentor for you? My sister. Nice. Honestly, she's like, a, she's 12 years older than me, so she's a little bit older, but she's a glowing example all the time of like, just that, what I live for, soulful living, right? Yeah. Like she, She's like a duck, water off a duck's back. She just kind of takes things in stride. And um, she's really supported me when I've had some of those difficulties. To kind of yeah. Show me the tools and help me uh, practically apply them. And yeah, I mean, beautiful. there's lots of other people, but if I had to pick my thoughts, it would be my mm -hmm. That's beautiful. It's good to um, connect yourself with somebody, and for anybody, to connect yourself with somebody who's able to always put things in perspective in the fact of, you know, just let that go. That's not yours. Like, that's just not yours. It's You don't need to stress about that because it's not yours to worry about. And when you're surrounded, as opposed to being surrounded with the drama queen, sorry, people out there, but the drama queens who, like, like all things are blown apart and terrible and you're like really that's the biggest problem you have um so it's it's you need to have that grounding right or at least be able to distinguish when you see people like that that it's like oh i'm not joining that energy train like i'm not even going to go on to that one so i'm glad that you have somebody like that well mm -hmm. and in the spirit of honesty i was that energy train for yep. that period in my life right yep. so my sister I've... was always the ground that brought me back to reality that's awesome i think i think that in all honesty most of us can say at one point in our lives we were on that energy train we had to be on it to realize that whoa i don't want to be on this one like this is not yeah. this train's going nowhere that's not where i want to go right um, if yeah. I asked you, what is something that drives you? Like what motivates you? What drives you? What inspires you to keep doing what you do? Or I, what inspires you in life? Again, there's a lot of answers to that question. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have enough time, but, mm -hmm. um, my daughter has always been an inspiration to me. Um, she's just such a kind hearted little soul and nice. it encourages me to, apply the spiritual practices I need to deliver a, a good life. Mm -hmm. um, but, so that's one of my driving forces is to be a lead example to her and um, keep moving forward. And I think I've always kind of just been what I call a hope fiend. A what? A hope fiend. Somebody hope that fiend. just goes mm -hmm. after fiend or after hope like it's, it's never going to end. So that's always kind of driven me to when I'm in that pit of bottomless despair of whatever tragedy is happening at that time in life. Um, that hope that tomorrow might be a little bit better. If nice. I just keep going, it can be a little bit better. And so I really cling to that hope. That, that, can I say then that that must be some outlook that you have? Like, that's like, that's not, that's not a common trait. I'm going to say that right now. That's not a common trait that a lot of people have or experience. I mean, you know, it's not even just a half glass full, half empty. Like some people don't even recognize they have a glass. They don't even, they're not even looking at like that they have a glass to have. So, and that, I don't know what that characteristic trait is, but I don't see it all the time or very often. And so, I mean, I think that that's really important to honor that, that that's something that you have. That's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, 
ironically, that's probably one of the other things that's always kind of driven me is this belief that like I'm no different than anybody else. And, and I know that's not true today, but I had to do a lot of work surrounding that and apply a lot of tools to really own my accomplishments or like you just said, my unique characteristics. Mm-hmm. Because until you just said that now, I honestly thought everybody finds hope in the most darkest of places. <laughs> oh my God, no. Oh my God, yeah. no. No, no, no. I, no. And, I, and I'm like, I'm positive. I think we've, I know we've met online, but I'm not in person, but I think, you know, like I am a positive person, but I'm also a realist. I'm very much a realist. And no, I would say no, majority of people don't have that. I think that, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that do, but I think that people who do have that hope, that um, positive kind of outlook or the shift in perspective, like people who can look at it in different perspective, that that is a unique trait. That isn't something that, and I think that, I mean, it can be learned. It certainly can, but inherently, I don't think that's something that a lot of people do have. So there you go. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So you've already alluded a little bit to it and I know some of your story and I know you've been on quite of a journey. Um, you are nine years. Is that not, is that correct? Nine yeah. years sober. Okay. So nine years. So let's go back to when your journey started, if that's okay. If that makes sense to you, where, or you can start, we start your journey wherever it makes sense to you. But I want to just kind of paint a picture for people that at that point, like nine years ago, that you decided this is different, like this time is different. So why don't we start there? So nine years ago, you you become sober. Okay. So a little over nine years ago in December of 2009. Okay. Almost paint a picture for the, uh, the readers. I was clinically dead in the merge. Wow. Um, it wasn't an overdose per se. I also have juvenile diabetes. I got that I was diagnosed with that at five. So the combination of that with the drinking and different things caused my heart heart to cease and emerge. Wow. So you would think at the advisement of the doctors at that time that if I continued to drink and use drugs, I would stop. Mm-hmm. I had planned to stop. Within a week I was drunk again. Um because I I can't stop on my own power, but I didn't know that then. Okay. So at that time, um, things got pretty bad. Like just, I, I got into a deep depression. I, I had to have my daughter go live with my mother because I was struggling to, to keep myself sober. Like it was just all well, the reasons I had had that I had always claimed I'm not an alcoholic because I'm still a good mom or because mm-hmm. I'm not here all those reasons were starting to very quickly fall into the quicksand of my life. Okay. Yeah. So um, in March of 2010, my doctor sent me to a psychiatric hospital for clinical depression. Okay. Um, And while there, they had me write the daily use intake test for both cocaine and alcohol. And I'd always been a pretty academic kid. So looking at it, I knew I had scored 200. I knew on a test like this, that wasn't a great thing. Um, in the spirit of honesty with the, re- the listeners, um, there was also a very attractive man in the addictions program at the facility I was at, and I wanted okay. to meet him. So yeah. I started I started attending the 12 steps piece over there. That is what started my journey to sobriety. Wow. Whatever it was. <laughs> like well, I, would say, 
I always say God uses whatever it takes to get us there. There was an attractive guy, so Megan went skipping down the hall to her first meeting. But you know what? In the same sense, God protects me because within a week that person was finished their treatment and gone home. And by that point, I had started to identify with the people in the room. Okay. Kind of knew that that was probably where I needed to be for a yeah. while. Yeah. You needed those days, right? Those days to start to connect that and go, no way, actually, I do need to be here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. when um so where was the point where you had the conversation with yourself or the awareness with yourself that no this is actually a problem that conversation probably happened back in about 2007 okay when I started questioning like I don't think this is normal behavior like I'd go out for two drinks and by the end of the night I'm puking on my best friend's floor and mm -hmm. bathroom floor I mean and not really understanding how I got to that point because I didn't intend to right but mm -hmm. I also would delude myself that well it won't be like this next time or mm -hmm. this was the one-off thing and so I would say probably right after that hospitalization in 2009 was when I sincerely realized this is a problem mm -hmm. but in that moment I didn't know how to fix it yeah like I knew there was a problem, but I was stuck. Those are two different things. I think that's for anybody too, who is listening and not just because dealing with addictions, that's not like, I think at any point that you want to change something, A is awareness. You have to have awareness first that this, what I'm doing is not working. This is not working. And B, you have to have the resiliency or the determination or the, the drive to say, okay, so A is not working. What can I try? What can I do? Right? Two different yeah. things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think another piece to add to it too is like, I knew I couldn't keep drinking and using drugs the way I had been, but I also didn't know how to not, like how to live without them. So it was this jumping off place, as I call it, where to live continuing doing what I was doing was going to kill me. But I didn't know how to live without them. So then there was a small part of my brain that thought my family would be better off without me. Yeah. Because I because I didn't know the solution yet, right? No. And no. and and didn't know where to look to find it. Um, luckily, that isn't part of my story. But I mean, I think just for listeners out there who may be struggling, they're not alone if they feel that way, and it is. I, I, I thank you so much for being that candid and honest. I really do. I always just like, I really respect when people do that because I don't want it to be painted as a picture that I decided there was a problem and I fixed it and it was done. It's just like, it's just not the case. I know. And it's not the case like that for any major life change that we're making. It just isn't. So I thank you for saying that and for being real. And I've said that myself, that there, there was a point in time when things were just so bad. I felt like I was duct tape to a chair watching the worst movie of my life and I couldn't get out. And I just like, I don't want to watch it anymore. I just don't want to see this anymore. I didn't want to watch it. So I think that, um, first I thank you for doing that and for saying that. Um, can I ask what it was like for your family to your best knowledge? Well, and it's interesting cause I, I just had an intuitive thought and I was going to actually say to you, Marcia, cause I know some of your story that my heart goes out to families of alcoholics and addicts because, um, you know, you, they, to the best of my knowledge, they wanted so desperately for me to be okay. 
Mm -hmm. But in the same sense, they were absolutely powerless. Yes. Just just like I was powerless to the substances, they were powerless to help me. And for the most part, they didn't completely walk away from me. But one of the greatest gifts my family gave me was they stopped helping. They said, enough's enough, Megan. We're not going to pay your hydro bill. We're not going to buy you groceries. Like, you're on your own. And that was partly what forced me to really start looking at my life. Because there was nobody for lack of better terms, enabling me anymore mm-hmm. with my behavior and to think it was okay. I am so grateful we're getting into this discussion and I thank you for saying that because it's very easy when people are on the outside, um, my case, your story, whichever, it doesn't matter, but it's um, very easy from the outside to say, well, you just stop enabling. You stop, stop, stop. And I get it. Like, I do get it. But I think that when you're enabling, you're enabling with the right intention. Like you think you're doing the best and you're literally like, I actually really literally believe most people are doing truly the best they can with the circumstances that they have. It's not that they're like ignorant or this or that. It's just, they're doing the best that they can. And when you're dealing with this, it is such a difficult, difficult um, experience and powerless. You're, I, I love that you said that because you're powerless Everyone around you is powerless, but you're powerless. Like it's, it's, wow. It's yeah. I can just see that. Well, and the other thing too is like with the enabling thing, I think too, from my family's perspective, they were just trying to keep me alive. Yeah. Right. And, and I think people from the outside that haven't experienced addiction don't always understand that for a family they're I consider it a spiritual malady. So it's a sickness, right? So I have a sickness of addiction and my family gets sick as well because I pull them into my, hmm. um, into my disease of using. And, and I, another thing I want to bring up is people always say addicts are liars and that just floors me because did I tell lies to get what I needed? Yes. Did I do it intentionally to hurt the people I love? No, no, it's, it is a disease. It's, it's exactly, it's a disease. And, and some of the lies I told, and I think I might've shared this on another podcast, but for example, my daughter was four years old, crying, begging me not to go out. And I looked her in the eyes and told her I would be there in the morning when she woke up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would say I lied to her when I was headed out the door at 9 PM in that moment, talking to my daughter, I wasn't lying. You could have put me on a lie detector. I meant that I would be there when she woke up. Mm -hmm. But this disease had such a hold on me that I couldn't stop when I was headed out the door from my mother's house. Right. So that's why I get so frustrated. Like when the people make this joke, when's an addict or alcoholic lying when their lips are moving? Mm-hmm. I know that has been some people's experience and, and it's very unfortunate that that's the nature of the disease. And I'm not excusing lying or bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But I think as a society, we really have to have a better understanding of what this disease really means mm-hmm. to better help people that are struggling because the statistics are horrific as to how many people are dying from addiction these days, oh. which, which goes back to the point about families, right? And no wonder they're trying so desperately to help their loved one because the stats say their loved one's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. And I, no parent wants to bury their child. No. So no sibling wants to bury their sister or brother, right? No. 
It's a, it's a really, um, there's just so many emotions there that even just talking to you that they bring up for me that I remember in feeling. And, um, I remember feeling like, yes, just keep them alive. Let's just keep them alive and do what we can until I even realized that that wasn't even my job anymore. Like that was not even my job anymore because even while I was trying to do that, I almost lost both. And it was just a, 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 we almost lost lost both a few days apart. And I just, that was a real turning point to realize that I actually don't have any control. Like I thought I did, but I don't have any control. And it took, um, and this is going to lead into a little bit of codependency, but it took a, a counselor to say, you have got to find a way to become a springboard in your life because if they choose to come back, you're nothing right now. You have nothing left to yourself. You could not, you could not offer support if you, if you wanted to. And he was exactly right. He was exactly right. And you keep thinking that we keep thinking that it's not selfish to take care of myself first because I, I look at these are my kids and what do I do and blah, blah, blah. And it's not selfish. It's no different than any other um, avenue of self-care. Like we can only give to the level that we fill ourselves first. So that was a real eye-opener as well. Um, I think that people, you said two things I wanted to touch on there, and we'll go back to the codependency. I'll just remember to do that, is the fact that like when you are going through, you're getting into the stage of recovery, if the family does not do some work, then like personal work as well, then it can hinder your recovery. And I think this is the, I've had many people who say, but why should I do it? I'm not the one that has a problem. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You have to realize this has, has it impacted your life? Oh my God, are you kidding me? It's impacted my whole life. Okay. So you actually have to do some work too. And I think that that's, um, it, it's when we're dealing with, um, families, there's a lot of this inherent, like when things go wrong in our lives, and I'm sorry for tangent, but I want to just cover this part. When um, things go wrong in our lives, we it's eat the first thing we are looking for is like who do we blame for that like who do we point the finger at and who do we blame and because we're stuck in thinking it's got to be someone else's fault then we're never taking ownership right and if i'm going to forever blame everyone else around me then i'm subconsciously saying my life is never going to change until they all change and that can't be the case either. So those factors can make a big difference in your recovery. I'm saying you because we're here and how they, we have to take that responsibility as well. Does that make sense? Definitely. It makes perfect sense. And actually, it's, I'm glad you said that because that was one of the turning points in my early sobriety was when I stopped blaming everyone else mm-hmm. and actually looked at I am the maker of my own life and took radical responsibility. Mm-hmm. And because there's something powerful in the idea of, because like I said, I was so powerless, um, connecting to a higher power of my own understanding and knowing that backed by that power, I can do anything and create anything in my life. Now, obviously within reason, but I mean, no, nah, no, I'm going to go with no. I think that that's no, you should own that statement. Cause that's like, there are people who haven't walked even a fraction of the challenge you have and don't have that outlook. Right. So we're back to the sure. whole. Yeah. Whole, yeah. And, and actually just to go back to the, the conversation about codependency too, just so everyone in the listening is aware, I dated a man for five years in recovery who was actively using crack cocaine and, um, I got very sick. 
I lost a lot of weight because I fell into codependent behaviors of trying to fix him mm -hmm. so that our family would be okay. And it was, it was very unhealthy, but I share that just to say, I do come from a level of understanding and actually what you shared, Marcia, a counselor said something very similar to me that you're no good to your family. If you mm -hmm. don't take care of yourself. Cause I was falling apart. Like, Oh I, yeah. I, everything revolved around trying to help him get well. Mm -hmm. and, and my own recovery started to suffer as well. And so it's, it's a dangerous game. You have to really take care of yourself. That you was know. after you were sober. Mm -hmm. Wow. Talk about putting I, yourself in a difficult situation. That's well, I, I, in the spirit of honesty, I didn't know he was using those. No, I, and I didn't mean that you put yourself, but I mean, wow, what it like to, to be working through your own recovery and having, that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah, and that's the other thing too, I think it's important to share is sobriety isn't necessarily going to be all rainbows and butterflies. For some people yeah, it is, mm -hmm. and that's, that's great. And I, I'm really grateful for the people that have that experience. My sobriety has been a journey, mm -hmm. <laughs> a journey and a half. Like mm -hmm. there's been a lot of ups and downs, but the beautiful thing is because I apply the tools that were taught to me, I can stand on this podcast right now and say that as of March 3rd, 2010, I have never had a relapse. And why I think that's important is because certain treatment centers say that relapse is part of your recovery. And I even heard that in the beginning. I've heard early. that. Yeah. If I, if I don't have a relapse, then I'm not really practicing sobriety. Luckily, that wasn't my experience. Now, that's not to say that if someone relapses, they're doing it wrong. They're not. That's just the experience they had. And mm -hmm. in, in the 12-step rooms I'm a part of, we always say our doors are always open. Please come back to us. But I think in the society we're living in now with the types of drugs that are out there a lot of people aren't making it up and so no. that's why I always mm -hmm. try to profess that relapse doesn't have to be part of your recovery you can get and it might have to do a little work especially when you're facing a circumstance like the one we discussed when tight life gets hard while you're sober you have to lean into your spiritual for me spiritual tools mm -hmm. to stay connected and and surrounded by hopefully your tribe of like-minded friends mm -hmm. to keep you moving forward in the path of not going back to what always worked before. Because mm -hmm. it stopped, the, the substances stopped working years before I got trained. I could have the idea that this will ease the pain. I won't feel it if I pick up a drink. And I haven't had those thoughts for many years because of the people and tools that I surround myself with. So you, I think it's so important you're saying there, like, did your circle change? Your inner circle, your people around you? Well, and it's interesting you ask this because that's another thing I often teach newcomers is for the most part, yes, my circle did change, but I have some friends that I've had since high school. When people say things like, you have to get rid of all the people you drank and used with, that wasn't my experience. I okay. do think you have to be cautious. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I had to change how I interacted with some people rather than getting together at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. Maybe we get together Sunday morning for breakfast. Nice. But because some of these people have been my dear friends, and they, they, they don't drink like I do, and they don't use drugs. So I don't think I have to cut everyone out of my life. Mm -hmm. But I also don't go sit at the Coke dealer's house and hang out for a good Friday night. No. Like you, you just, do have to change something. 
Yeah, you change more. Um, it's interesting. Do you end up changing more the circumstances and situations you put yourself in as opposed to just the people? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, too, we live in a society where there's drinking at every corner. I mean, with the new government laws coming out, it might oh. get corner stores, right? Yep. So to say that I have to remove anything related to drinking out of my life, I might as well go live in a bunker in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And even then, somebody might show up with a bottle. So, Easy. Mm -hmm. so I have to be able to live in society, and and I want to be able to enjoy my life, which is what I, I rave about today. Like, and it's like life is absolutely incredible sober, and mm. that was one of my fears getting sober too. Was like I'm just going to become an old broad that's boring, right? And yeah, I'm pretty exciting, and <laughs> I have a lot of fun. But, so I didn't awesome. know that was possible, right? Yeah. And so luckily today I've met people that are having so much fun in this variety. Right. But again, back to the statement of I create my own life, I get to decide every morning. Is it going to be a good day or is it going to be a bad day? And it all depends how I decide to move forward with the day. I, I just absolutely love what you're saying. And that is why it resonates so well with what I talk about here. And, and really what this platform is, is like when you own your choices, you own your life, you take responsibility. It's not, it's not blaming. It's just taking that responsibility, right. And owning that. And when you take, you've said it two or three times now, those are some of my favorite words. It's like radical responsibility. You take that radical responsibility and you can create change with what you want to do. I mean, is it easy? No, it is, is a constant set of tools that you go through. So I'm going to like, even I haven't dealt with substance abuse myself. I've been certainly surrounded by it for a good chunk of my life, but I am in many aspects. But the thing is, is that if I want to change anything, whether it's substance, overeating, gambling, like any, you have to have tools that you use that work for you. And the thing is, is that you might get better, yet you, but everyone listening, you might get better at recognizing the signs and go, oh, I don't like this path of where I'm going. But if you don't have some tools to pull on to anchor that back down, then you can't shift gears and change. And that's, that is a really big thing for people that I want them to understand. And, and I'm sure you can relate. There are times, there were times when it was like life would take me out of the knees and I'd be down for a week, like just down. I couldn't even get myself up. Now it's like, it's a blip. It happens. I feel right. We want to like allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling, not numb, not like ignore and all those things, but they, then the tools come back in. It's like, what tools? So can you share with us some of the tools that you find have been so um, helpful for you? Okay, so the first thing for me is prayer. Okay. And for people that aren't religious, it doesn't have to be that kind of thing. It can be like talking to your best friend. Yeah. Um, it's just that positive prayer or affirmative prayer, you know, saying the things that I want the way I would like them rather than maybe the way they are. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just asking for help um, from what I believe to be my higher power. But again, if people aren't religious, please don't let that deter you from what I'm yep. saying. It can be the consciousness of the, the human spirit throughout yeah. the world, like the oneness that we all share. Right. Um, but that's, that's been a huge prayer. And then meditation mm -hmm. really, and, and not necessarily because, Having an addict brain, my brain moves really quick 
a lot mm -hmm. of the time and there's a lot of thoughts going through there. So I don't necessarily always do stillness meditation because my brain can get really loud in stillness. Mm -hmm. But I do, oh, sorry, my microphone dropped. It's okay. Um, but I do do um, like forms of meditation and mindfulness. And when I take the time to do that every day, it sets me up for the rest of the day. Wow. Um, and, and when I'm going through struggles, I find I have to lean into that more. Yes. Because the more I do that, the more connected I feel to the oneness that I believe is all of us and the better armed I am to face the day. Mm. Because on the difficult days, I struggle to do it alone. Yeah. Like, on my own power. And, mm -hmm. and that tends to be what puts me at risk. So then another tool I would suggest is finding your tribe. They're out there somewhere of people that get the way you think, that understand the way you feel. For me, I found that in the 12-step fellowships. Other people might find it in other places. but And, and then since then, it's grown. Like I have this amazing um, tribe of women I've met through our mastermind and other groups that I'm involved in. But it started out as a few people at a meeting, and I found the people that seemed actually happy in life. I find in the meeting rooms there tends to be two groups of people. The ones that are happy and enjoying their life and working the 12 steps and recovered, not cured, but recovered to the point they're not obsessing over using anymore. And then there's the other group that tends to be miserable and um, often relapsing. And, mm -hmm. and there's no judgment for those no. people. It's just I wanted the happy side of recovery so I went to the people that presented what I wanted and then I did what they suggested I do okay so I, I thank you for saying that and I really want to touch on one thing that that hit with me that I'm sure someone else will understand there is the fact that people they look at the tribe and you assume that it's the people that are around you but you are staying open to the fact that there are people out there that you haven't met that can be part of that tribe. And I, I say some of the people that are the most impactful in my life, I've, I hadn't even met yet. Like I didn't even meet them until this happened. So that's it. But you also said there, and I love this and I want people to hear this, is, is that you have to know what you're looking for. Like you have to know what you're looking for. You could very well have a friend that you have had for 20 years who is um, absolutely terrible for you, like terrible, like negative, 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 but it's who you know. You have to decide is what am I looking for? Like, what do I want to see in people? Because when we're clear about that, we can start to see that. Yeah. And there's yeah. lots of people like that, right? Like we, we found even in our group, there's like just women really honestly, seriously supporting each other. Like like 100% wholehearted, not a competition, not a, and so they're out there. I'm telling you they're out there and you know that, but that's, I love that you said that. Definitely. Well, and another thing just for any women that are listening that are possibly substance users or newly recovered, one of the key things for me was I didn't like women when I came in because mm. the life I lived, women backstep each other everywhere, left, right, center when I was mm. in the substance using world. Right. And, and I find that tends to be a common thread of most women that like, I don't want to be around women. And I had to learn how to be around women and, and trust them. And now some of my greatest women in my life are just absolutely incredible and inspire me daily. And I'm so grateful. 
but I had to get over that old idea that women are backstabbers and women are gossips and women mm-hmm. don't like each other. And those were just old ideas I was carrying around. But again, that goes back to another tool. I had to get rid of all those old ideas and limiting beliefs hmm. that were holding me back. Powerful, right? Yeah, you, you know. In order to do that, I needed to get help, right? Yep. I needed a coach or a mentor that could point them out to me and go, "Yeah, that's not serving you anymore, Megan. What's the root of that?" Mm-hmm. And now I can do it on my own, but in the beginning, mm-hmm. I needed that. You, you said that there that um, you found yourself you're always at risk when you tried to do it alone. I just think there is so much power in what you just said there that there is like you are at risk when you try to do it alone. When we are dealing with the difficult things in life, a lot of us try and do it alone, right? We power it. That's what strong women do. You just put your head down and you do it. I don't know who gave us that definition, but we had that definition for a long time. It's wrong. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. If you're listening, it's a hundred percent wrong. Um, so please don't say she told me I did not. Um, it is wrong. So it's, we cannot do it on our own. Right. And I find sometimes the more difficult the topic, the more we retreat because we are living with that shame of, you know, I'm like, I don't want to say, I don't want to know I'm struggling. I don't even want to know that this is going on. I don't want them to know. So I, I think that there was absolute gold in what you said there is that we are more at risk when we try and do it alone. Definitely. Well, and I can speak very briefly on um, my daughter ended up with some mental health struggles two years ago mm-hmm. and I was doing it all on my own again. I was leaning mm-hmm. into my higher power, but I wasn't sharing with my tribe. I wasn't, I was just trying to, trying to fix it. Right? Yep. And, um, I ended up in adrenal fatigue. Like yeah. it, it was bad. And that's just one of the many symptoms that come from us women trying to be strong and be the mama bear and be the provider and be all these things and not asking for help when we need it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that help is just a shoulder to cry on or somebody to vent to about this crap that's going on. As long as, like we said in the beginning, we don't do it for three weeks on end. It's like you, you get one day and then let's keep moving <laughs> forward. Yes. Because if you stay stuck in it, you're just, you're, you're no good to anybody that way either. But I think it's important that as women, we, we really start to support each other in that way. Well, and I should say that all kinds of women support each other but that we start to ask for the support we need because nobody's a mind reader. You know, everybody what? Can, <laughs> right? What? <laughs> I think I seriously thought people were mind readers for a very long time and I'm realizing, yeah, they're not, right? But when no. I ask, what is it? what's that statement? When you ask, you'll receive. Like, yeah. the minute you ask, your girlfriends are like, I didn't even know you were struggling. Why didn't you tell me? And it's like, well, and you put on the face, right? The face that you're doing great and things are like all these things. And they're like, what do you mean you're struggling? Like, you look great. Like, you like you didn't show even a sign. Yeah, because I was working really hard not to show a sign. Which is like, <laughs> we make it harder for ourselves. Like, stop the whole perfectionism because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we're not relatable. We're not. Like, we're, we're not. We're putting ourselves... I was like the shield example that Brene Brown uses, right? You wear, you're wearing this like 20 ton shield of perfectionism and now you're keeping the rest of the world out. Like you can't even, you're, so there's no, you can't selectively block emotions. And when you do that and you put that shield on to protect yourself, now you don't feel anything because yeah. there's no, there's no, like you can't, you can't block it. So it's like, you just, you, now I'm just protecting myself and I'm not yeah. feeling anything, which is not going to solve anything. So it's, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not real, right? And, and no. I think that's one of the reasons I've always been an asset to people that, that know me because, um, and I'll, I'll share this here, I, mm-hmm. I recently was diagnosed with autism. Yeah. So the way I see the world is not the same as everyone else. And I kind of just state things the way I see them. So oftentimes it, it's helpful to people because there's, there's no real filter. Like it's just kind of, this is the way it is. Um, but again, I still had to be able to ask for help. Like even in that situation now compared to the past, the first thing I did was ask for help. Okay. What do I need to learn? What do I need to do? Who do I need to contact? All Mm -hmm. of those things. And then on top of that, asking for help, getting into the action. I think that's a big piece that gets missed. And that's one of the tools I would often say is action, action, action. I can sit here and tell you what I'm going to do and talk about what I'm going to do. It's not blue in the face. But if I'm not actually taking the steps to do it, mm-hmm. I still only just made a decision. Right. And, and it's like the and change comes from taking the action. It's always the action. It's always the action. And you know, sometimes that action can be so crazy overwhelming yeah. and instead look at it and go, okay, like I always say, what is one thing that I can do today that is going to take me closer to, right? Every decision that I make takes me closer to or further away from where I want to go. It's exactly. my every single one, every single I love one. That. Yeah. I love that is always my, and when I'm having those loud, those low moments, it's like, okay, Marsha, if you're going to take 10 decisions that, actions that take you further away then tomorrow you're really far away from where you want to go right so it's that self-reflection and question um how what would you give for advice for somebody who is like i don't know if this is a problem i don't know if this is a problem well there's a couple schools of thought there um if if you're not sure if it's a problem there are um different tests you can take to kind of see if it's a problem as per mental health guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, I often say, if you think it might be a problem, it's probably a problem. Right. Because my standpoint is everyday drinkers take a couple drinks, tell themselves they've had enough and they go home to bed and get off with their life. They don't think, Oh, I had two drinks today. I wonder if that's a problem. No. Like, it, I find in my opinion, it's only a question of if it's a problem that in your soul, you know, it's, Hmm. But that also requires you to have that conversation with yourself, right? And you yeah. mentioned that earlier in the call, having that conversation is that this is, this is not working. Like it's not, I go out with the intention of having one or two drinks and now all of a sudden I I'm out for a day. Like what, how did that, how did that happen? And I think that awareness that this, this I didn't intend for that to happen, but that's what keeps happening. Exactly. And, and another thing, too, that I sometimes have recommended to people, um, and it's, it's out of the big book, too, is try not drinking for a year. Mm-hmm. If it's really not a problem, you can go a year without it making your life miserable or anything else without having a drink or any other substance for that matter. Right. Oftentimes, if it's problematic behavior, you probably won't make it maximum, I would say, a month before mm-hmm. it's like, I have to have some. Yeah. It's... It's interesting you say, because I know when I, when I first started, when we were going through this with our kids and I had a lot of friends who were like, come over and have a glass of wine and have this. And then all of a sudden the glass of wine was a bottle and then it was this and everybody meant well, but there was this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, look at the irony of what I'm doing. I am like actually dealing with my frustrations 
by drinking wine to deal with like substance abuse. It was just so weird. And then it became a case where it's like, you know, if I want a glass of wine, I will have one. If I feel like I have to have one, there's no way in hell I'm having one. Like that's just, that was the, that was the line for me where I realized that I, I won't. So I went for months without having anything just because I was like, there's no way I'm doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm not adding this dynamic into an already difficult situation. Well, and that's so beautiful that you, you were able to control that. Right. And that's, that's where people who are alcoholic addicts, they'll have the exact same thought you did. If I have to have one, then I'm not going to have it. And then two hours later, while they're banging their head on the bar, they're like, how did this even happen? How did I get here? Yeah. yeah. Because they don't have the power to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I think it's really important, anybody listening, if you say, well, I think that's describing me. It's not a weakness. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just no. recognizing that that is a pattern that keeps playing out. And then it just goes back to the same thing, right? No judgment. Does the pattern work for you? Like, does it, like it's just, if it doesn't work for you, then something has to change. And I've always felt, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, if any kind of use if, of any, alcohol, drugs, whatever, is impacting a normal I called quote normal, um, active life. Like, so whether it's a job, whether it's a home, whether it is school, whether it is like, can you maintain basics of life with a normal? And as soon as those start things start to become, then you've got an issue. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I would add a caveat there though, yeah. that like there are some people that can still maintain the job and maintain yes. the house, maintain the family. So, we always, there's a bottom below the bottom, you know, and because some people's bottoms are really high, right? Like they still have the job, but they're struggling. They're still yeah. struggling. And, and I always say that it's this internal, like the substance abuse is this internal feeling of discomfort and dis-ease yeah. that I can't keep going like this. And, and you're just trying to fill that void in your soul with whatever you can possibly get your hands on, be it sex, drugs, alcohol, yep, workaholism. Yep. Like you can fill that void with whatever. Phone, and phone social media, scroll yep. hole, like mm-hmm. it's, it's numbing out, right? And But nothing's filling that hole. And for me, what filled that hole was getting connected to the power greater than myself through mm-hmm. the 12 steps, right? And um, since then, other tools that I got it in. And I think that's a really key in education is if you're just feeling that ick all the time in your life mm-hmm. and you're using substances to get rid of that ick, maybe it's time to look at a different avenue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, nope, that's great. With you, I do agree with you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. No. Um, if, if you're questioning while you're listening to this that there's something wrong or there's a problem, because that was one of the fears that I thought, like I said, stigma, right? There's a lot of stigma associated with yes. alcoholism and addiction. And yes. we're, we're all working together in the recovery community to break that stigma. There is nothing wrong with you. You just have the disease of alcoholism or addiction. And yeah. it is possible to recover and live an awesome, amazing, epic life. Right? And, yeah. and every alcoholic addict I've met is one of the most insanely awesome people I've ever met. They have so many beautiful characteristics and qualities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most are so strong-willed when it comes to getting the promotion they want or getting the spouse they want or like 
so strong will, and it's not a question of willpower when it comes to substance abuse because the willpower is practically non-existent. Like it's not like if you just wanted it, you'd do it. You probably do desperately want to quit. The problem is you don't have the tools yet to do so. Oh, see, that's that. That's a really again a really powerful phrase that you've said. Like the willpower is not the issue. You don't have the right tools. Yeah. That's it. And, and I, again, as we said earlier on, I think without the right tools, like you have to, and, and your tools are going to be different than my tools and, and vice versa. And I might have five or six that I rely on, but when it really gets tough, um, there's one or two that I have to. So I always joke like, and for me, I'll separate myself. I will go away for a day or two. I will find somewhere where I can go. There's no one else. I just need to get my head back into a better spot. And then I have a lifeline. I've got the friend that I can call, um, love her to pieces, would never have met her without this situation. And I can call her. Now, she's also the person who's going to go, okay, now, this is what you have to snap out of. And it not, not the, Oh my God, that's terrible. Like it's not, I need the ones who are going to say, this is what you have to snap out. So I think that I love that you've shared a bunch of your tools. And I think that that is, it's, it's fantastic. But then also knowing that there's that one or two that like, you know, if you start to get so removed or things are happening faster than what you, you've got to have those one or two to anchor you down again. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, that won't co-sign you. Can I swear on this podcast? What was that? Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, sure. Okay, I thought so, but I can't. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you got to have those one or two that won't co-sign your bullshit. Yeah. Like, oh, I love that. Right? absolutely love that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. because, because without that, you're just going to keep spiraling down and down and down. And like studies have proven, if you get onto a sinking ship, you're going to sink with the ship. But if you get onto the lifeboat, you'll make Sure. Right. So. Now, if you all get into the same lifeboat, a, co a counselor said that to me one day, if you all get into the same lifeboat and you all have four oars and you're rowing all different ways, it doesn't work either. <laughs> no, sink too. And I love that analogy has always stuck with me is the fact that you can, if you're all sitting in that same boat, trying to roll, row in different directions, like you just keep spinning. And that's, yeah. I mean, it's spinning, spinning, spinning. And it, wait, nothing is happening. No, it's not because we're all going, like we're just colliding. So it's, um, I love that. I love those analogies and how you shared that. If you could go, if you could go back, um, and I don't want to die because we've tied into so much of this, but I just wonder if there's like a thing that you could go back to when this first started, is there anything that you can look at it and go, yep, that was going to be an issue from the beginning or did it develop into more of an issue? Like how, yeah. What was the early, early journey like for you? And how early did it start, if I can ask? Um, well, it's interesting you bring this up because now with my learnings about what alcoholism is, I would actually say I had alcoholic addicts from a very young age, like the age of like two, which is that selfish, self-centered thinking. Okay. And I had like my first resentment when I was like three years old. My dad broke my inner tooth in the pool, like just little stuff like that. And I carried that until I was 26. So can you say that again, just so people can, not the part of the inner show, but you called it something you said it was My um, first resentment. First resentment. Yeah. So do, would you, would you say then there's a correlation between people who carry those different, um, 
like a different resentment? Is that, is that, is that a factor or something that you can look back now and recognize that, Oh, that was definitely an issue that contributed in some way, shape or form. I think, yeah. Like I wouldn't say everyone that carries resentment throughout their life is no. an alcoholic addict, but definitely alcoholic addicts do carry angers and resentments. And for me, resentment is just a recurring thought or feeling. So okay. why I brought up the inner tube is dad taught the inner tube when I was like two. I brought it up until I was 16 and he took me to the pool place to buy me another one to shut me up about it. And I thought wasn't good enough because it wasn't the same inner tube. And then at 26, when I got sober, I finally let go of this holding on to this stupid freaking inner tube, right? <laughs> but like, yeah. I don't think the average person carries something like that for that long. But for me, it was like this deep traumatic wound that he broke my inner tube because, and the thing is, because it was mine. That was the only reason I was upset. It was mine and he broke it. Yeah. Right? And a lot of the things I've had to overcome that I carried was anything to do with the word mine, my mm. marbles on the schoolyard, my grades, my this, my that would lead me to have some resentment because I thought I had some ownership over something I had no control over. Um, wow. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. I, I mean, I really thank you for sharing that. I think that that is, I'm just thinking of now, if we resent, I'm going to get philosophical for a second. I am not a psychologist. But if we, if we carry a lot of resentment in our lives, then we are blaming someone else for why things have gone the way that they have. And we all know that's not a productive behavior, right? In any way, shape, or form, regardless of what we're talking about addictions, but in any way, shape, or form. So it's, I'm, I, it's interesting you said that with resentment. I, I hadn't looked at that that way before. Well, that's just it, right? My whole life was blaming my life is this way because my mom did this and my dad. And don't get me wrong, my parents gave me an incredible life. Yeah, yeah. I love them dearly. Um, but I blamed them for everything. Or I blamed everyone for everything. And when I finally was able to say, no, enough's enough, I got to look at me. Because the common denominator mm. in all of it was me. Yeah. That, that must take time, though, and age and maturity to get to that space. It took a lot of pain. Like okay. for me, pain is my greatest motivator. And I was really sober and just, I was so done with, with always feeling like it was like my life was somebody else's fault. Like if it's somebody else's fault, then I don't have the power to change it. Right. Because they have to change. And I had come to understand I don't have the power to change people, places, or things. So if it's always something else externally that's affecting my internal condition, I'm pretty screwed. <laughs> I don't have a chance. Like, right? I, yeah. I, I do. I do know exactly what you're saying. So I when do. I finally was like, okay, so that whole idea of like happiness comes from within and all of, I was like, well, if, if it has to come from me, and if it, if it does come for me, like if I take ownership, well, I, I won't go into that because it could be traumatic for some of the listeners, but on some of the traumatic incidences of my past, when I looked at areas where I had some part in it, even if it was just holding on to it for 15 years and letting it control me, mm -hmm. when I was able to let that go, everything shifted. Yeah. Because I was no longer living in what for me had served me for a very long time, which was victim mentality, that it was everyone else's fault. And I don't say that to discredit anyone that has been a victim. of a No, I know you don't. No, I know you don't. Just, for me, it was a mentality that I carried with me, that like everything was well with me. 
in. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to get away from that through doing the inventory and step work and applying the tools, I now had a chance in life to make the rest of my life the best of my life. Mm -hmm. And you are doing that. You are 100% doing that. And I, I honor you for that because I think the whole message there about not playing the victim and not playing, like not using that victim mentality, it, it has more power and it is applicable to every single person that is listening, regardless of what your circumstances are. Because when you play as a victim, you will not take the ownership to make change because you're waiting for someone else to do it. And do you really want to give that power away? Like, do you really want to give that? You don't want to. And so, I, yeah, that's like, there's your back to your radical ownership again. You can't be a victim and take ownership at the same time. They're like two polar opposites. Yeah. I, um, that was the name of my book was when she stopped asking why for that reason I had just the why had the why was absolutely killing me. It was absolutely oh, yeah. every time I asked that over and over, it was killing me. And I didn't, I didn't have it in me to make big changes, but I could change my words. And every time I'd ask why it was like, no, why does it matter? Marcia? It's what, like, what comes next? What do you do next? Cause what is action? As you said earlier, action are the only things that are going to create change. So you have to focus on the actions. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. So you are doing a lot with your story and you are doing and spreading a lot of good in the world with your story, which is like absolutely something I absolutely love because that's what this whole thing is about is creating space for people to share their stories so that they can make an impact in others' lives. So what are you doing now with your story and what is your mission? Well, uh, my mission is to serve as many people as possible in whatever ways possible. So what I'm doing with my story now is I have an Instagram account, soulful mm -hmm. underscore sobriety. Yeah. And I'm just sharing little tidbits on there every day. And I'm kind of, that's my platform that I've created. To, mm -hmm. um, I'm a speaker. I'm currently an author in two co-authored books. And um, I'm... I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but I'm launching my group program. Awesome. So, and it's called Soul Full. The idea of that is to help people overcome adversity and start living a life where their soul feels full. Well, how is how fascinating is that? I love that. Your soul, because some people might not even know what that means. Like, what does soul fill mean? What does that mean? What is, like, how do you know if your soul is full? For me, it's waking up excited every morning to face the day and the mm -hmm. adventures that will come, no matter what those adventures look like. It's right. knowing, it's also knowing that no matter the external circumstances in my life, I'm going to be okay mm. because I'm fueled by my, my heart and my soul and that intentional living, right? Like yeah. back to, back to the radical responsibility, but it's knowing that you are in charge of your life and the outcome whatever the outcome is, doesn't change who you are as a person. It does not. I'm just, yeah, I was just, you, you caught me in a moment there because I was thinking about how that is so intentional that we can set out to do the work to make a difference. It doesn't mean that it's always going to work out and maybe it's, maybe it works out even better than what we ever anticipated. Right. But it's setting out with the intention in setting up with that intention of making a difference and making an impact. I, I love that. I love that. I absolutely love that. And you are a very, I'm sure you've been told this, but you're a very, um, I'm going to say an old soul. You can see it. 
and but very heart driven, like very, very heart driven. And from, I wonder if I can say this again, in dealing with different levels of addictions, um, I have seen a lot of different personality traits of people who are out to help others. And I've seen the very hard school, hard ass like approach. And that doesn't always work. That's not always the, so you have a very, um, I'm, I'm not going to call it soft because I think it's not soft. I think you've got that side to you, but you're very heart driven and that's that you can definitely see that. Yeah. I can be hard when needed. Yep. You <laughs> but, have to be. But you're right. Yep. I am. I am very hard. Um, yeah. I just find life. I, I said, I said it on a podcast or somewhere the other day where I think love is a universal language that we all understand. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when we come from that place of love and caring and healing as often as humanly possible, none of us are perfect, but when we come from that place, we shift the vibration of the world. We do. We absolutely do. Right. And so yeah. that's where I try to come from. Again, not perfect at it. If the world services of the 12 step fellowships had cameras in my home someday when my 13 year old daughter is telling me off and I'm being a mom, I would be completely embarrassed because I'm not always heart centered. Sometimes I'm oh, okay. Well, let's just go with being human. A mom. Yeah, yeah exactly. let's just go with human and being a mom because I'm sorry, when you get to like 13, 14, not. It's a tough age. Those are some yeah. tough ages. Like even good kids, it's just a challenging, they're challenging everything about their identity at that point. And exactly. yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you've done the work that you can do and have done so that you can be and have those tools because these are tough ages. Definitely. Well, and mm -hmm. I, I should also share one of the other things I'm, I'm stepping into right now is all throughout my life, I've been considered a healer in mm -hmm. my family, healing hands. Yeah. I, I am a master level or two in Reiki practitioner, and I am also offering healing sessions to people that want it. Well, not offering for free. There is a, a charge. Mm, good. Um, good. That's, that's something else I've really stepped into because I find it can be really beneficial for substance abuse as well as physical pain as well mm -hmm. as mental struggles. Um, and we really apply that in our home quite often. So awesome. you mentioned my daughter. Sometimes in those moments, I'm sending her some Reiki and some light healing and from the distance, right? Yep, yeah, exactly. You're sending it and you're changing your state and that can change the environment, which can change her state without you trying to change your state. If that makes exactly. sense. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I don't know if I said that right, but that's why I said, but it's, it's like many times I would say, I mean, I learned to change. It never changed my, our issues, but it changed how I handled things, which did change circumstances yeah so it's very i mean it's that that's a challenge because I, I hear from parents i'm sure you can relate and they will be looking for like what's what's the tool how do i fix them how do i save them and i'm like uh you have to take care of yourself first and they're like no you're not listening i'm gonna lose my kids <laughs> what do i do and i'm like you have to take care of yourself first and i know i remember thinking that was absolutely crazy but it is you have to do that and that's that's what you're that's exactly what you've done yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow that's that's great Thank you so much for being so real and raw. And I love that. And those are just my favorite traits in people. I love it. Um, I have a couple quick questions for you if, um, before we wrap up. So if you could go back to any age in your life, where would you go back to and what lesson, what message would you give your younger self? You can pick any age. 
honestly, there's a few, but I think I would probably go back to like my four or five year old self because mm-hmm. that's when I was diagnosed with diabetes. And I would just tell her that it's okay, you're okay, and you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Just keep moving forward because she was scared, right? That little girl was terrified. Well, and I think in fairness, like think about, I mean, how many years ago that was now? They t- like the juvenile diabetes, there's a lot more discussion now about it. But back then, I, oh my God, I can't even imagine how like there was probably some lacking as far as what information. I actually got really lucky because we ended up at London Sick Kids Hospital. So they nice. like had videos. And That's they had a fantastic a, hospital. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I got very lucky and the doctors I had were incredible. So they did explain it as best they could to a four-year-old, but I was yeah. four-year-old and they were poking me with needles two, three times a day. <laughs> like, I'm sure that was so, like, that's, and it probably imprints in your brain, right? You were four, but you remember that vividly. Yeah. So I think I would just reassure her that, mm. you know, I know this is tough, but you're going to be okay. Wow. And, and give her a whole lot of love. Mm-hmm. Give her and, more love. My parents did do all of that again, yeah. not to discredit them, but it's just when you ask where I would go, that's the first thing that comes to mind is that little scared mm-hmm. little girl. Because mm-hmm. when you ask what triggered, I do think I have a lot of denial of things that were definitely impactful throughout my life. And mm-hmm. not to say I would have or wouldn't have been an alcoholic addict because of those things, but I think something catalyst to know along. Right. Um, well, um, and the last question is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? There are so many. Um, mm-hmm. I think the one I'm most grateful for is the fact that there's always the chance to try again. Like, as I said earlier, I should be dead. Mm-hmm. not just because I was clinically dead in the merge, but I've been in a lot of circumstances throughout my life that put me at higher risk statistically mm-hmm. to have died. Yep. And for whatever reason, my higher power had a purpose for my life and a reason for me to be here. And today I'm so grateful that I get to be here on this podcast with you and I get to get my daughter off the bus in an hour and that might, she might have had a very different life and I might not be here had things gone a different direction. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I had that experience to really wait to fuck up, basically, for lack of better terms. Yeah. But I needed to wake up and God put things in my path that forced me to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, you decided, right? Even yeah. if your higher power put things in your, I still think, um, make sure you take that credit that you, yeah. you decided that yeah. it was your, it was your time that this is not how I want to do it anymore. And I think not to go backwards. I just want to say one thing, or ask you one thing is you mentioned it earlier. And a lot of people say like, well, maybe this will be the bottom. Maybe this will be the bottom. And I remember at one point saying to somebody that, no, I'm done applying my bottom to the situation because and I don't judge that, but my, my bottom is, was like a long time ago. Like it was a long time ago, right? You can't, and it's, I don't know why that is or why that phrase has such a saying when you're dealing with issues like this, but it's like, well, maybe this one will be the bottom. And it's like, no, it's actually, I just stopped saying it. I think it's a redundant, ridiculous statement myself. It it really is. Right. Because is it even really a bottom? Like it's a never ending pit. 
far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and that comparisonitis too of like this person's bottoms over here and this person's like every, like you said earlier, everyone is different. The tools everyone needs is a little different. And mm -hmm. so just because one person stops at 22 with a college degree and another person goes till they're 65 and has been drinking for 40 years doesn't change the feelings, thoughts, guilt, and shame that's carried by an alcoholic or an addict. Right. And that's the thing we've got to focus more on the common solution and the common symptoms rather than the differences because there's going to be differences across the board for everyone. That is that in itself is very, is very powerful because we are talking more about the things that people don't want to talk about. I know that I know we are, it doesn't mean we're necessarily closer to solutions, but we are talking more, which is a start, right? It is definitely a start. Um, but some of the things that are not being, not being comparison to others, right? Recognizing what some of those tools and solutions are that can work. And I really believe like as far as when we're dealing with this issue with families and understanding that everybody needs to be on board to learn how to take care of themselves so that they can be even a better, like just a better support system for you, for us. Like it's, because I've heard more stories than I can even count of people who have gone in for treatment and then come back and nothing changed in the family. There was so much resentment, so much anger, so many things that were there that all of a sudden it's like, it doesn't take, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's easier to, well, they think of me as an addict. They think of me as I, then I, I guess I am like, it's just, it's that whole, if so we have to do our part too, to yeah. let go of that anger and resentment to support people who are on their journey. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you say that because there's a line in the big book that I'm paraphrasing right now, but it's something to the effect of years of living with an alcoholic would make any wife or child neurotic. Mm. Right. And, mm. and again, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but it's, I think it's important that back to the old ideas and, and belief patterns when living with an alcoholic addict for no matter how many years it's been, you do learn to live a certain way and exist a certain way in life with them, right? Yes. Like, so there's patterns of behavior. Maybe they go on three-day binges every weekend. So you're used to having the house to yourself on the weekend. And you don't, when they try to get sober, you don't understand why they're there and trying to be like, what do yes. you mean? I've worn the pants in this family for six years. Like, what are you doing here? Yes. So yes. everybody, like you said, everybody has to learn to adjust to this new way of life. Yes. Yes. It's work, right? It's work, yes. but it's work for everybody. And I think that that's, it is a disease, but it's, I think it's a family disease. I think it yes. also impacts and affects um, everyone around. So I, um, I like just going to throw that out there as a good thing that as we continue to support families and to actually encourage people to share their story and step out that we can. And as you continue to work with people on that process, that hopefully we can just change the stigmas and the shame and the guilt and the blame just a little bit more, right? Wow. It's just got, it's got to change a little bit more and a little bit more before those changes become more permanent and impactful and helping people to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I honor you. I honestly do. I thank you so much for being so 
real and coming on here and sharing and you've given people so many different tips to take away and you've shared and been vulnerable with your story. So I cannot thank you enough, Megan. And I will have all of the information in the notes for people to connect with you, but I bet you have so much knowledge to offer. So I thank you for stepping into this role. Thank you so much for having me today, Marcia. I look forward to hearing from some of you on social media. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks, Marcia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Until next time, remember, when you own your choices, you truly own your life.